0: This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Are you as excited about your kids being online on the internet as I am? I feel like I'm always playing catch-up with the latest apps and sites that my kids have access to. All the good and all the bad is always there, but I'm not always there. That's why I want to tell you about Hero Parental Control. Hero is a high-tech tool that helps you stay ahead of the game. Activity from all of your family's devices can be filtered, monitored, and even tracked via GPS from one easy dashboard that you have. You can adjust all your filters. Material that might be healthy for a teen can be harmful to a young child. It works on all of your devices, including your mobile. It's easy to set up, intuitive to use, and it stays up to date with ever-changing technology. It's going to make the internet in your house appropriate by your standards, not what society says. So enjoy the good and block the bad.
1: Go to blazehero.com. That's blazehero.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This week, I had the opportunity to fill in for Buck Sexton on his show and spent the time talking about the President's speech this week. Really try to break down the speech from the perspective of the substance, the style, the technique, some of the moments that he brought out throughout his speech and how those moments give us a unique insight into lessons that we can put into our lives right now. I think you may enjoy it, check it out.
0: Spreading freedom across the nation, this is
2: The Buck Sexton Show.
1: Hello everybody, welcome to The Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck. Oh, What an honor to be back. In front of Team Buck, man, I miss this. I miss this. I had the opportunity to film for Buck a few months ago. This, you guys are the best. You guys are the best audience and the best the listeners out there. And so it's an honor to be back with you. It's an honor to be able to spend a couple of minutes today with Team Buck, especially a day like today, March first. And I feel like it's like the beginning of something new, don't you? I, I do. I mean, I felt I feel like if you look back at the year and all this presidential roller coaster stuff and all that we've gone through. There are like moments that shift the course of American history. And I don't mean to be too dramatic here, but I really believe that what I saw last night, I'm hoping, is a shift in a direction that would really mark the Trump administration and a lot of the policies that he's going to be able to bring forth. And I want to talk a little bit about the show. The speech last night. Obviously, today's show is going to be about the speech, but we're going to do something a little different. For those that are joining us, just to give you a little update as to what we're going to be accomplishing today, we're going to be delving into the speech, dissecting it, but from different perspectives and different angles. We're going to talk about it from its style. We're going to talk about it from its substance. We actually have someone coming on the show in about a half an hour who predicted Trump's win years earlier because he had access to a book that actually laid out the entire strategy before anybody knew it. You're going to hear this. This is incredible. It's coming up a little later on in the show today. We're actually going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the moves that Donald Trump made throughout his speech and why it resonated. Because when you walk away from a speech like that, there's two levels that you can hear it in. There's this sort of obvious policy level and talk about what he said and what that's going to mean for the infrastructure, and for taxes, and for health care, and for immigration. And we'll have that conversation, and we'll talk through some of those points now. But there's another way to walk away from a speech like that and ask ourselves, okay, well, what are the lessons that are within this stuff? How does this apply to my life, not just from a policy perspective, but from a practical, personal perspective? What, what have I heard last night? What can I learn from last night's speech that may be helpful to me in my own personal life, and how I present in front of my peers, and how I deal with things, and how I can get through the challenge of, of my life. And so that's what we're going to accomplish today on the show. hope you stick with me. Uh, it's an honor, really, to sit in for Buck, and hope that you're with me for the next two hours as we sort of delve into every single angle of the speech. And I want to jump in right away and talk about how important this speech was in general, because where the Trump president presidency was going, I think, before last night, was into a world of just no return. At some point when you're the president of the United States and there are factions that hang around you and make decisions about your competence and make decisions decisions about who you are and what you believe in, at some point there's a point of no return. I think Barack Obama hit that point. And for those that were listening to various parts of the media, you'll see that as his presidency sort of carried on There was nothing that he could do that was good in the eyes of many, and it was because after year and year and year of hearing him, people started to think that he was just his way. He was too myopic. He was too self-focused. He was too self-absorbed. And as a result, when something came out, they questioned his words. And when you start a presidency, everyone sort of gives you that benefit of the doubt. Usually there's a bump. Donald didn't get much of that bump, but usually there's a bump. And almost... I think, for the first time we've ever seen in modern history, that bump was not only short, but it was short-lived. And the world sort of started to gang around Donald Trump and decided that he was really not going to be a great president, that he's not my president marches and the approval ratings that were sort of at a constant negative. And when you are trying to run an administration like that, it never really goes. You can't possibly do anything, especially at a level on a scale that large, if every time you do something, most people think you're doing it incorrectly or you have sinister reasons for why you do something. And pictures of Bannon as the modern-day Cromwell and pictures of Donald Trump being out of touch and you know having no heart all start to get into the mind Of the American public, and at some point, it becomes over. And what Donald Trump did last night was show us a few things. First, first and foremost, before we get into the actual specifics of what he went through, forty to forty-five million people tuned in, and when he walked in, and the crowd erupted, and when he got up there, I got to tell you, I as you know, for those who are listening to me, I wasn't a Donald Trump guy from the beginning. But I'm, a, I'm an American guy, I and mean, I'm gonna respect the office of the president, give them the benefit of the doubt guy. And Let's see how this administration comes through and what happens. But the one thing that I will say is that the ability for the American public, and what makes us the greatest nation in the world, I believe, by far, is the level of respect we have for the office, is the ability for people that disagree with him. And they did all, that, all the stunts, the white stuff. They're all wearing white, and they're not standing up, and they're not clapping. And some people didn't even clap for the Navy SEAL, which is ridiculous. And there's a lot of that, but at the foremost, just at, at, at the surface, to be able to have a nation divided sit in one chamber and listen to the president speak and to clap or stand for him, that is the backbone of how our democracy works. That is the backbone of how our companies and our families and our religious denominations should work. There's a certain modicum of respect. Now, I'm not saying it's going to last five minutes after the chamber, but at least we have to sort of be grateful for what we saw last night. And what Donald Trump did last night in his speech, I thought was masterful. And of course, you'll always have people saying that it's this, and he's reading off, you know, something that a college student, whatever the stuff that people were saying last night. I thought, by and large, the response was overwhelmingly positive from the left and the right. And the reason why it was so good was because he did a few things really well. Some of them were just public speaking 101, which we're going to get to in the back end of the show. Public speaking is the number one fear in America, right? Number two is what? You know, it's death, right? That means that if you're at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. And last night, he used a couple of really interesting techniques that I'm going to share with you on the back end of the show. And you can just immediately use whenever next time you get to use a presentation or wherever that is. But what he did last night, which I thought was so good, was how he couched his policy. Right? He came on with the understanding that he was trying to soften. That was the goal. He had a tumultuous first 40 days, He was getting criticized from every which way, and his goal was really to steer, if you will, this divided nation and a president with historic low approval ratings by basically pleading with the American people to give him a chance and explaining why he does what he does. And if you notice throughout the speech, and I'm sure you can just Google right now and get the whole speech in like two minutes. Don't you love the internet, by the way? Don't you love that? Like in the old days, you had to watch the speech, right? Now you get to not only not watch the speech, and if you missed it, YouTube it in the morning. Forget that. You get to watch the speech in three minutes, in two minutes, in one minute, and they just cut the clips. So I I, advise you to do so. But what he did was throughout the speech was he kept his key pieces to his policy in place. Right? His his policy, his his efforts against, you know, radical Islamic terrorism, ISIS. Right? He spoke about the travel ban and in doing so really spoke to the compassionate argument. People are are accusing him of being heartless. And he tried to sort of steer it and to flip it and to speak about compassion not from a perspective of the immigrants coming in in these particular nations and the potential terrorism and the inability to vet them from where they're coming from, but for the people of our country, right? He spoke about trade. And when he spoke about trade, which I I I, I, I couldn't believe it, He, he quoted Abraham Lincoln, right, who warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people. Right, The idea that we're going to be kind to everybody else but our family, that's part and parcel of the Judeo-Christian ethic in which this country is founded on. Moral principles demand us to take care of our family first. You're not a righteous person because you can give out alms to the poor, the strangers while your kids are starving. But the shift, the spin, the frame, of the trade policies that he's looking at to protect the worker, of the use of steel, right, of the infrastructure that he's trying to build and why the trillion dollar plan that he's trying to put together is going to jumpstart a lot of the jobs and rebuild this country. I gotta tell you, when he said to us, when he said in the speech, we're spending all this time rebuilding the world and what about ourselves? I said to myself, you know what? He's not wrong. Right? I live in New York City. Our airports are I wouldn't say top of the line. The infrastructure, the buildings, and so what was going on throughout this entire speech was a real stick to the principles: tax reform, right, middle middle class relief, the wall, right. At some point, he turned around and he said, "Ask yourself the question: How are you going to answer someone who loses their jobs because we can't defend our border?" Right? And each and every one of his policies, what he was doing was responding to much of the criticism that he got along the way. But here are some of the small things that may have been missed. Along the way, he threw a couple of bones, right? If you noticed, he spoke about paid family leaves. And what he did, that's a long-held Democratic Party priority, right? And so when he said that, it became very hard for the liberal lawmakers to not jump up and clap, right? His his working with Muslims, his mentioning, which I think was appropriate, Muslims that are also getting killed by terrorism, softened a little bit of the blows of his racism or his claim, people claim that he is, right? His increase in military spending, although that is mo- most definitely right on that list of what he is um, known for in his policies. You notice that, you know, That's right down the fairway for one of his fiercest critics, Senator John McCain. And so along the way, what he did was continuously build the reasons for his policies, frame the criticism, send in a few of these olive branches across the aisle, which makes it harder and harder for the people afterwards or during to not be part of. And what we saw last night was something that I think is something that we can take and teach every one of our lives, which is, lots of times in life you start off with the wrong footing, right? You start off and you're ambitious and you think it's your way, and you get running on things, and along the way you break things, you offend people. But to have the time and the ability and the opportunity to be able to pull back, and to explain, and to frame and to hear what people are saying against you, and to include it into the reasons for why you're doing it, just being able to articulate something actually changes how people respond to you and how people respond to it. And if you notice afterwards, this is amazing, is you can literally see from the entire press what people are saying, right? You know, Anderson Cooper, this is probably without doubt one of the best speeches I've ever heard. Right, one of his best speeches. I mean, even it gets harder and harder. I I know MSNBC had a whole thing with uh, the Kentucky governor, which we'll talk about when we come back from the break. But it's an amazing thing, just what happens. You can explain. We come back. We're going to talk about what what MSNBC tried to do, how that how that didn't work, and speak a little bit about just what it is that one needs to do to become more effective. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network.
0: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show.
1: And welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton. Hope everyone's doing well. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Excited about what I heard last night in Trump's speech. Excited for the tone that he's using and excited for the fact that he tries and is trying to unify the country behind his vision. And I think that's the most important thing right now. I think if you're looking at what people were saying when they left was this moderateness, this lack of extremism in his articulation. Because that's what happens sometimes in life. You have ideas and you think it's your way and the world pushes you back. And in pushing you back, you do one of two things. Either you harden yourself and say everybody's off and everybody's wrong. I don't need to explain myself. Anyone have a bosses like this? Anybody have a boss that says to you, hey, by the way, it's my way or the highway? Anyone have parents like this? Does anybody parent their children like this? I don't need to explain myself to you. I'm your father. You get this? Well, that's not how leadership works. And where the Trump administration was heading towards before last night, I would say, is this world of we'll do it our way and we'll go a million miles an hour and we may hurt some people along the way and either hold on for the ride or have fun watching from the sidelines especially recently with this whole media stuff and not inviting certain media outlets and the panic and the pandemonium of the media saying I'm not invited to enough stuff but what last night tried to do and I hope it continues and I don't think for one second that he went deep into policy I I agree like I believe, like most people, I think, that it was a little little light on the specifics, but it wasn't meant to be more specific, right? It was a it was a national address on 40, 45 million people. It was supposed to be lofty. It was supposed to be more visionary. And there were pieces of it that I may have particularly disagreed with. But the idea that he got up there and he reframed and he set a vision and he asked for the time, and he almost felt a little more humble, if I can use that word, Donald Trump, was very encouraging to me. And you can see from the reaction that people had afterwards just how hard it was for the usuals to come against it. In fact, MSNBC had something where they had Stephen Bashir, who was this former Kentucky governor, basically sitting in this, looked like a diner with a whole bunch of people, totally staged, stunty, even per, you know, Rachel Maddow saying he, it was reckless and it was terrible. And even when the panel responded to seeing it, they were like, oh, stop. Like, come on. Like, seriously? You guys, it, it just it just comes across so partisan that whatever he says is going to be terrible. And you see, even the responses today, this is the terribleness. And And what happens is sometimes when someone else has their moment, it's hard for somebody else to even acknowledge that moment. And Donald Trump has and will have, I'm guaranteeing plenty of difficult moments as a leader. There's plenty of times where this nation is going to stress, scratch their heads and go, really? But this last night wasn't one of them. So, you know, as as an American, you got to pull back and go, you know what, let's give it to him. Let's just give him one night where he got the right speech written and he said it right and he seemed somewhat genuine and sincere and he delivered something that the nation may not necessarily agree on but can get behind. And there's enough in there. I think, for the nation to get behind, even if they may disagree on a lot of the practicalness and the practicalities of how this gets done. And he delivered that. And I think it's important for us to think through that, by the way. And a lot of what you're going to hear from me in the show and what you hear from me in general is, what does this mean for me personally? And what it means for you personally is that many times in life you have ideas and you have directives and initiatives and missions You're in charge of something or someone or you're working with something or somebody and they don't necessarily agree with you. And it takes a really big person to pull back and explain. We come back. We're actually going to be talking to Jake Novak, an individual, a political commentator at CNBC who got a book about five years ago and has used that book to be his blueprint for how he predicted Donald Trump's election and how he is predicting what will be the drivers of the Trump administration, all from a book that he received from, of a particular author a little, bit, a little while ago. It's all coming up with Jake Novak. You're listening to The Buck's Exit. This is Charlie Harari, filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Sexton show on the Blaze Radio Network. Wow.
2: Rex Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Now right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone's having an enjoyable March 1st as we head ourselves into spring last night. Donald Trump delivered, I thought, a knockout. I think people around the country may have agreed. We have on the line right now an individual who has been on the show with me before mostly because he was predicting Donald Trump to win, and everyone thought he was crazy. Uh, Jake Novak, political commentator, was saying for months that we're missing it. The story is not whether or not he offends this person or that person, or whether he's politically correct or not correct. Things are not going to take him off message, and he's going to win, and everybody thought he was nuts, and he was right. Jake, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. I I still might be crazy, even though I was right, though. We should make sure that everyone knows that.
1: Right, right. Let's make sure that's a clarified point. Right, exactly. So so recently we had this conversation. I know that you have this op ed on C N B C and I would uh I'll tweet this out to everybody and you know, if you're Googling it, Google the op ed, Jake Novak, C N B C It's not the art of the deal. You have this you have this op ed out there that I was I have I absolutely loved. And in it you say that there's a book that you got in two thousand and twelve that gave you the blueprint that was that that enabled you to predict Trump's victory and you think is going to be how he's going to you know, basically govern his administration. What is that?
3: Yeah, it's like a secret book. It's called The People's Money. It's by Scott Rasmussen, and that name might ring a bell to folks who follow the polls. He he is the founder of Rasmussen Reports, although we should say he he actually hasn't been connected to Rasmussen Reports. He left, although they kept his name, he left uh, almost four years ago. Um, But he does have a lifetime of polling. Uh, He's also an entrepreneur. He's one of the co-creators of ESPN, by the way, which a lot of people don't know. Um, But he has a tremendous amount of experience both in the real private sector world and then in this polling world where he really got to know... Voters and things that voters want and not coming in with a lot of any presupposed notions, just really hearing them and listening to them in a way that a politician doesn't always do because politicians are trying to mold the conversation and and Scott was just trying to listen to them. And the people's money, which uh, I actually got a chance to look at it in 2011 because he personally handed me the pre-published galleys uh, at a meeting I had with him. And he makes the, the strong case that the American public really dislikes politicians, really dislikes the political class. And this might not sound like anything you don't know when, you, when I say it that way. But he really gets into the details of how much that dislike is there, how much that distrust is there, and how both sides really don't understand each other. And when you read that book and you reread it, you see how clearly the need for a candidate like Trump was out there and how easily he was the guy to win. And um Going forward, it's so much easier to understand his policy choices and the things that he's pushing for now. Also, with that book, you know, as your knowledge, if you take that into context.
1: So let's let's take a step back and think about some of the big things he spoke about last night: immigration, yep. taxes, um, infrastructure. So, what are the areas in particular that you know the the nation feels strongly about that the politicians may have missed?
3: Well. And this comes in with immigration, too. You mentioned infrastructure. The The nation is, the people in general, have long believed that the politicians' priorities are not the people's priorities. So when the politicians and their compliant uh collaborators, for lack of a better word, in in most of the news media, tell you that illegal immigration isn't a problem. The public doesn't believe it. The public has its own personal experiences with this that say that's not true, and in some cases, they just have that feeling that it's not true. They feel like the government is telling them this because, well, they like the illegal immigrants eventually become legal and vote for them. They like the corporate donors who take advantage of the low-cost labor, and and that's a a big example of why Trump continues to mention this and continues to use this issue and doesn't come up with a big compromise Like some people were reporting he was going to do last night. And that's one of the. Illegal immigration is a great example where the political class and the people diverge. On infrastructure, it's the same thing. You know, people and this includes a lot of people from the left, which really gives Trump a unique uh, appeal to non-Republicans, they believe that the wars that we fought, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan and the way that they've been carried out, were not completely necessary, and that things like infrastructure were uh, neglected in favor of that kind of spending, which is why it was so brilliant for Trump to connect it to. He never mentioned, I don't think he mentioned infrastructure once over the last couple of days without connecting it to the foreign wars. I mean, I hope you noticed that. That's a really smart thing to do because it's exactly one of the things that the political class doesn't really get about the American people. Every time we spend money in a war, it's not only about life and death. It's also about hey, you know, this road doesn't work because infrastructure is a war. Fighting a war is a lot like an infrastructure project. You know, there there is road paving. <laughs> Literally, there are there is things like r- road paving right. and build bridge and bridge building and wars. So those things kind of get connected in, in the public's mind.
1: Right, and once you go someplace, you can't just get up and leave, right? You've got to maintain the bases. You've got to be able yeah. to sort of create some level of infrastructure you're putting in. And he mentioned it yesterday in the speech. We're out there building the world, and what about ourselves? Right. And I, I wonder I wonder if he's hitting on something. I mean, in, in your opinion here, is, is there a certain – we spoke in the beginning of the show a little bit about this concept of the point of no return. And sometimes in in, in through the tenure of an individual, of a president or of, of Congress – the, the public stops to trust them entirely. And whatever they say, they just dismiss. Is right. that what you think is happening right now? Are we at a point right now where the American public says, just take an instrument and beat up the political class. Like, every yep. time we see Donald Trump, every, every time we see people sitting around and crying about him... Um. And and you watch sort of cable news, and you think like, oh my God, it's terrible. Everybody's against him. Is the rest of the nation going? What? 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 what, what? Who cares? Like this is ridiculous. Just continue. Just get out the chainsaw and like just let just let just start from scratch and let's just sort of replant here. Is that is that what, what what's going on?
3: Yeah, you hit on a very important point. You know, I know very 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 few Trump supporters who absolutely adore the man. They don't adore him. They just, they feel like he, you, you, you said the words, they consider him a blunt instrument who's smashing a political class. They know that he's a little disgusting. They know he's a little rude. Maybe they don't want to have a, do more than have a, a business dinner with him. He's not the guy, so they, you know, they had have a business dinner with him, but they wouldn't bring him home for Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, that is not true, I think, of a lot of people who adore, within the political class. They look at each other adoringly and fawningly, which is why people didn't understand why, gee, why didn't the rest of the country love Hillary Clinton like other people in the political class then? And the answer is because the rest of the country is not the political class. We don't look at our politicians for that. We use our family members and maybe our our rabbis or priests as people that we want to look up to in that way, not our politicians. And so that's why Trump's so perfect for that anti-political class movement, because they're not looking for another Obama or another person who was worshipped. They are looking for someone to do do a job. And um, that's very important to Trump. I think 30, 40 years ago, he couldn't have found a way into, into politics, because I think people were a little bit more, weren't as frustrated as they are now
1: right and i i wonder going forward just how much of it do you think he is implementing how much of what took place last night is grandstanding and is you know back off everybody and i know i have a plan i know what i'm doing i got a vision and i know exactly what's going on and how much of it really is him saying listen i'm going to start to unveil a lot a lot a lot of changes get ready
3: well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, one of the things about the American political structure that isn't uh, a, a deception of the political class and isn't a bad thing is that the trend is your friend. You know, if you have a deficit of 100, you know, $100 billion in a particular program, and over the course of five or six years, you continue to whittle away at it, I mean, in real dollars, not in political class math, you know, which is kind of bogus. I mean, real, real money is actually starting to get saved. Then, in some ways, it's, it's just as good as actually getting that deficit down to zero, because it encourages people to do more things in in the private sector. They feel a little bit better about the economy. They do things. They go out and buy things. They do better things. So I think that's going to be a big part of the Trump story in the next four years. You know, he's going to get more individual companies to say they're hiring people. Will it make a huge dent in the macroeconomic monthly job or yearly job reports? Maybe not. But the more that we hear these stories of the trend being our friend, more companies thinking about hiring more here and there, you're going to end up with a thousand here, a few hundred there dozens there of people who feel better, have a job, are more secure, and that will be infectious. Now, not, again, It may not. if you're an economist or a political class type who, who wants to look at these numbers and crunch them in big ways, maybe he won't make that, those big policy changes that you're talking about, but it doesn't matter. I think he's going to, to get the people to think in a more positive way with these little victories along the, along the way. That said, I do think he is going to have some big program stuff that he's going to implement, whether it's the tax cut, some form of an infrastructure plan again because he doesn't really care about uh, running for office again or have family members who are doing that and that was a big problem with the Bush family. I think I think there will be at least one or two major programs that he does implement and he will build some form of a wall. I mean these things have to happen for him and I think that he can get
1: it done. Right. And 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 that's a great point that you're making in terms of the trend. It's something that I think most most of us don't fully appreciate just how much momentum actually matters and what yeah confidence means to the marketplace and what happens when you feel like the future is going to be bright and, and, and borrowing and lending and, and hiring and what that does for an overall economy. And I know that you're, you're a busy guy. And I want to sort of just dive into one aspect before I let you go. And, and this is an important, I think, part of what he said yesterday. And when you when you go back and you look at some of the economists and some of the business leaders sort of dissect his speech, some of the things that that's coming up right now is this, what they're finding is, you know, this desire to stimulate the economy, right tax cuts usually put money back in the pockets of the individual who spends it back into the economy stimulating the growth and then you have all this spending right so it's, in some ways you've got sort of two sides of a coin we're going to create a lot more spending trillions of dollars that are going to go into the budget we're building very expensive infrastructure both internally and on the borders and we're going to really spend 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 but at the same time we're going to cut 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 and right. we're coming off I know those, the, the, the GDP numbers I think just came out and we're coming off continuous tepid growth yeah. so you've got almost like this interesting storm right? we're not really growing that you know what, what Barack Obama left us from an, for an economy wasn't exactly a great economy we're coming off that and we may feel a pinch in, in, you know, in interest rates and then you've got a president saying hey listen guys I'm going to cut 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 it's going to be amazing but at the same time we're going to spend a lot more money how does that all sort of jive to you?
3: Well, you know Europe is a great example of this. you know there was a whole austerity push in Europe a couple of years ago, and it didn't seem to work that much. You know the idea of just cutting without spending or some kind of stimulus didn't seem like it was working very much for them. so I think Trump's trying to avoid that. He wants the austerity of cutting all these subdivisions within the the departments, which by the way um the book the political you know the People's Money really talks about how the people support that kind of stuff they They don't want to cut major departments completely, but they like killing individual programs all over the place. But if you only do that, you, you're right, you, you create a, a situation where people aren't necessarily positive, they're not thinking about the positive momentum in an economy, and it doesn't help grow the economy. you got to have something that stimulates. Now, conservatives for years have said, well, cutting taxes will do that, and that'll be enough. But I don't think Trump buys that, and I don't think the people necessarily buy that. They want to see real action in some way. I don't think that Trump is going to be able to make a huge dent in balancing the budget, even if he cuts and we get a lot more growth. It's still—it's just something we can't grow our way out of, and and we can cut our way out of it, but it's going to take bigger cuts than even Trump wants. But. This is the point that you're making. You've got to have a positive attitude in the country. Nothing is going to be done if people feel like things are getting worse. You know, a great example is crime. Crime is still at historically low levels, but it's up over, you know, in certain cities like Chicago. It's, it's higher than it was the year before. So even though it's down compared to what it was 30 or 40 years ago, it doesn't matter. People see a negative trend, and it gets people very upset. So a positive trend can be infectious can can make some positive things again, I just know if you're looking for the, the deficit to be cut in half or cut by a third in, in four years, you know you're going to be disappointed, but if you want a country you want to see a country that has almost you know three or five three point five percent GDP and a stock market that's remaining at these levels, I think you might not be disappointed
1: right and I, I think your, your point is is well taken, and I, I'll let you go with one last question because this is a question I think most people don't fully appreciate. But you, in in your position and what you're seeing both at CNBC and and, and just from the financial perspective, the economic perspective, the political perspective, how important is perception, right? How important is a feeling like it's going to be better? And is that really what was going on last night? It was this sense of... Daddy's home or mommy's home, you know yeah. th- your parents in the house, and we got this. So like you know, when I was a kid growing up, I remember when you know whenever I would be in the backseat of a car, right, and whenever we got lost, I just looked over to the front, right. My mom or dad was driving, and if it looked like they knew where they were going, I was like, okay, I just go back to doing what I was doing in the backseat. But if it looked like they were nervous, I was like, uh oh, am I gonna? Are we gonna get there alive, right? Is is what last night really was? After you pull away all the policy and all the stuff, it is was last night just his way of saying. Someone's behind the wheel. We're going somewhere. It's not all fragmented. Stay along for the ride.
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, perception is reality in politics. You know, I feel sorry for my accountant friends and my deep dive lawyer friends who are convinced that what the the balance sheets say and the statistics say are the most important thing when it comes to politics. It, it's It's really not. I mean, just think about the way that the Democrats were peddling Hillary Clinton as a the candidate. They kept saying this crazy line over and over again. She's the most qualified to run. It's an insanely stupid thing to say in politics. We don't we don't it's like voting for it's like choosing your wife based on some list of qualifications. It's not how it goes. It's an emotional thing like you were describing with the backseat metaphor. It's a feeling that the country has. Ronald Reagan was the king of this. FDR was a tremendous king of this, you know, motivating the country to get out of the Depression and the war, and then Ronald Reagan right. getting us out of our malaise and to win the Cold War. This is a huge part of what politics is. It is so much about perception, and he did seem incredibly presidential and incredibly common sense-like last night. I mean, everything he right. said out of his mouth is something that I think that the polls show great. really we, we go to strongly board. support.
1: Jake, thanks so much for joining yeah. us. we got to jump to a break right now. Always great to have you on. Continue your great work. Check him out jake novak google him uh I'll, I'll tweet out his stuff today this is charlie harari and this is the blaze radio network this is the buck sexton show
3: on the blaze radio network
1: Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie, R here filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's well. Just spoke with Jake Novak um, and his work and how he was able to predict what Donald Trump was going to do and how the future is going to be looking like under the Trump administration. And I think his conclusions about how people feel about the political class is something that a lot of people have been waiting for someone to be their representative on. But what I really want to transition and go into hour two with is this idea of this perception shaping reality. So much of how the world works is outside the spreadsheets. It's outside the bottom lines. It's outside the, the, polit- the, pol- the politics and the, the policy papers. It's perception. It's how you see the world. Last night's speech was not just about his policies. Last night's speech was about perception. He needed for the world to hear him on the greatest stage and feel comfortable and confident we come back in hour or two we're going to actually speak about specific moments of that speech and how it evoked certain of our emotions for a reason it was done very deliberately check it out this is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton and you're listening to Blaze Radio Network we'll be right back
3: Sexton
0: Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Spreading freedom
0: across the nation, this is
2: The Buck Sexton Show.
1: And hello everybody and welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's well. Happy beginning of March, beginning of spring coming your way. Spent hour one talking about Donald Trump and his speech last night. Why it was, I think, momentous and what he's planning on doing in the next um, you know, few months and years to make true of his, of his agenda and of what he's going to be ultimately delivering for the country. But one of the things that I think gets lost when you see something of this, of this magnitude is the style. Right? We get sometimes too caught up in, in, in the weeds, if you will. And when Jake Novak was on last time, we spent a little bit of time talking about some of you know, the, the, the areas that surround the speech, and we sometimes forget to pay attention to that. And that's really everything, right? What's What really happened last night wasn't just a conversation about immigration or tax reform or infrastructure or fighting terrorism. And if all we do is walk away from a speech like that and hear those specifics, we sort of miss the point. What happened last night came together and congealed into something that was even bigger. And what I'd like to do in this hour is really identify some of those moments. Because when you go back to your life, when you're listening today to the radio, and you're asking yourself how I can be more productive, how I could be more effective in what I am doing, you'll get those lessons much less from the tax plan that Donald Trump comes up with You'll get those lessons from understanding the, the the thinking behind all of the advisors around someone at the level of a president. We don't take advantage enough of some of these more internal lessons that are being used to employ larger strategies. And as a result, we miss some of the most important stuff, right? Perception shaping reality is the story of last night's speech. It's not the specifics. His goal last night was to stand before a nation and tell the nation, you'll forget half of what I tell you in the next two hours, by the morning for sure, but what you'll remember is how you felt with me standing behind this podium, in this room, in front of the entire political establishment cheering for me, and me coming across as being confident and all together." The perception. And by the way, look at the markets today. Look at what's going on today in Wall Street. They're responding to that perception. They're responding to that feeling of confidence. And you personally, in your life, right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing in your life, in your family, in your job, in your business, in your church, whatever you're doing out there today, your leadership is being defined. Not necessarily by what you say, it's by how you say it, by how you react, by what you do in crisis, by what you do when people push back on you, by how you articulate things to people that are your detractors, by the confidence that you show, like I said last in the last hour, when you're the parent driving the car, the confidence you show changes the feelings of the kids in the back. And that, by the way, is true in, in everything that you do in life. Perception shapes reality. And when you see a presidential address, and when you see a presidential candidate, what you're not seeing, but what we need to see, is what's really going on. The fight in our minds for is the perception positive. Do I feel comfortable and confident? And if you do, it has real tangible benefits. It will change whether you as a business owner will make a few new hires. It'll change you as an individual whether you'll make that purchase that you may not be able to necessarily afford but feel like you'll make more money in the future. That's all based on how you feel about the economy, about the government, about our future because perception shapes reality and what happened last night was more than just a few words what happened last night was a game of emotion evoking and when you can see last night from that perspective it opens up a new world for us to learn from. And I I want to hit on one piece of last night and you notice last night I think came down to one moment it was the moment that transcended the speech from being about policy to being about person. It was the moment that we felt proud. I think it was the moment that made the speech, right? And if you remember last night, what you'll remember is halfway through, Donald Trump turned around and addressed a woman named Corinne Owens. She was the widow, she is the widow, of US Navy Special Operator, Senior Chief William Ryan Owens. Ryan died in a commando raid in Yemen that took place in January on Trump's order and at some at midway through his speech he turns and dresses her
2: and here's what he says the challenges we face as a nation are great but our people are even greater and none are greater or braver than those who fight for America in uniform we are blessed to be joined tonight by Corinne Owens the widow of U.S. Navy Special Operator, Senior Chief William Ryan Owens. Ryan died as he lived, a warrior and a hero, battling against terrorism and securing our nation. I just spoke to our great General Mattis, just now, who reconfirmed that, and I quote, Ryan was a part of a highly successful raid that generated large amounts of vital intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future against our enemy. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So, I want to explain what happened just now. And I want to sort of take it down piece by piece. And if you, if you haven't done it until now, I would highly recommend you taking whatever time you have right now, even as I'm talking, right? And Googling this, or maybe not as I'm talking, right? As soon as I'm done, in the break, just YouTube this clip of the Navy SEAL moment. And here's what you're going to find. And if you noticed in that clip that we just played for you, there were two pieces when they started to clap. And the first piece was when Donald Trump basically just called out Corinne and thanked her for Ryan's service, and people started clapping. And we cut a little bit of that clapping here because we wouldn't have you sit there and listen to clapping for 40 seconds or so. But what you what happened at that moment was the entire crowd erupted in applause for this wonderful woman. And I, I just go to it and check it out because you'll see something amazing. Everyone in that room stood up. Unfortunately, some people didn't clap, which is a whole nother discussion. And Mrs. Owens sat there and just took it all in, in tears, sitting, the entire time. And as that moment hit, I thought to myself, that's what it's all about. Isn't it? It's what it's all about. It's about gratitude to those people that are sacrificing their life for this country it's about recognizing that we may disagree on a lot of stuff I mean a lot we may decide that using money for this is a good idea or a bad idea and spending money on education or military cuts or military reform whatever the things are that we have in our lives and we may go every single day. There's a famous quote by Chuck Schumer who said, like, he was on in front of... I remember he was giving a speech in front of Congress about something, and he said, I've had a very, very difficult day. You know, it's, it's hard. You know, you have to sacrifice for this country. And a former Marine got up and goes, you know, Mr. Senator, I don't think you know what sacrifice is. And I don't mean to downplay people that are working hard. But there's working hard, and they're sacrificing your life for this country. They're sacrificing life and limb because you believe that what we have going for us is the most important thing in the world. And what gives us the ability to sit in a chamber and fight over whether or not money should be spent on one particular program or another particular program, or fight as to whether or not we should allow these many people in or these many people in, really pales in comparison to the sacrifice that goes on every single day on the battlefield. And we and we forget this. And by the way, not every country does. There are countries around the around the world where you see soldiers walking through the streets all day, not soldiers that are coming back, soldiers that are patrolling. There are countries around the world right now where everybody goes into the military when you're when you're at high school. You know, Israel is one of those countries where when you come out of high school for the most part Everyone's going to the military, and the entire country feels like it's filled with military presence. Our country, in many ways, has been fighting battles overseas, and we lose sight of that. It's not in our face constantly. And as a result, it's easy for us to forget the people that are deservant of our highest level of gratitude. And every time we see a story about some veteran hospital that leaves veterans unattended to, we look at it and go, this is just wrong. Forget politics. It's wrong. And by singling out the widow and thanking her for the death of one person, one soldier, what Donald Trump did that moment for me, and go back and watch the clip, and you can see her face, and you can see her pain, and you can see, and this happened in January, we're in March. You can see the pain of a woman, and I think she has three kids, losing the love of her life, getting that call in the middle of the night that the person that she's gonna spend her whole life with is no longer here because he sacrificed his life for an ideal, for a country. And watching her in that pain and watching the entire country basically with its representatives for one moment applaud her on behalf of her husband does something that politics can never do it makes us human and when you can make somebody or something human when you can express gratitude what you do is you take anything that's in your world and you elevate it. When you're able to be grateful for what you have, when you're able to be grateful to somebody else You take the conversation and you elevate it. You unify it. When you're in a family and you can't be grateful to your own parents for what they do for you, even if they're imperfect, or your children, or your spouse, when you're at a job and you have no capacity to be grateful to the people around you, if you're leading anything in the world and you can never pull back and show gratitude for those that sacrifice, even if the sacrifice isn't necessarily as great as that of a Navy SEAL, you keep the conversation to be very base and mundane. And people start to be bitter and they fight. But if you elevate it up a notch, you show how human you are. You show how we're all connected at the end of the day. You show how all of the stuff that we're fighting about is is inconsequential and compared to people that are so much more important and do so much more. When you can elevate a conversation to being grateful for something or someone else does, you show true leadership because you get to unify people. And it's not just a distraction to the policy. And it's not just, well, this is something that he had to do. And if anybody sees last night's speech and says, it was a gimmick or a trick, they are missing the entire point. That was the moment. Everything else is the distraction. Everything else is how you have to navigate your life. What makes this country this country was that moment. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what he said next and why what Donald Trump said second, that I'm going to replay, or I'll say it, caused Ms. Owens to jump up and clap and how that is actually Most important things you could do to somebody in pain. This is all coming up when we come back. This is Charlie Harari sitting in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: And welcome back. to Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's doing well. Talking about Donald Trump's move last night and his incredible ability to show some gratitude to a Navy SEAL that died in a commando raid in Yemen in January. And what I wanted to sort of bring up in the, in the few minutes I have left before the end of this half hour is something that I think is important for everybody to realize, especially if you're dealing with pain or you're talking to someone that's in pain. And he did it last night, and and you may miss it. So I'm telling you, as soon as I'm done with the show, Google this, YouTube it, and watch it, because you'll see it. You see him saying thank you, and everybody claps, and she sits there crying. And then he says that he spoke with the general, and they, in the process of the raid, they uncovered viable information that's going to protect American interests and, and save lives going forward. Ryan's legacy is etched into our eternity, right? He says that to her and the place erupts again, but this time it's different. Watch it. It's amazing. This time, his widow, Ms. Owens, gets up and starts to clap. Like, really, the first time she sat and she was basically just crying, and the second time she stood up and she started really clapping loud. And you can see a total change in her and how she responded to it. And I thought to myself, that was so incredible because the greatest pain someone has when they lose somebody or in life is purposelessness. I just made up that word. It's when things have no purpose. Meaningless. That was the word I was looking for. Meaningless. When someone passes away, when someone is in pain, and that pain can go from you stub your toe until you lose someone you love. What feels worse than the loss is meaninglessness. What do they stand for? What's the purpose of it? Why did I lose them? And when you live a life of purpose, and when you can show somebody the purpose of their pain to get stronger, to get better, when you can show somebody what they've done in their lives is etched into eternity, the way Donald Trump said it, you're not just saying thank you. It's a much different game. You're not just saying thanks, which is important you're giving them hope you're giving purpose to the pain and you can see it from the widow google it it's incredible she jumps from her chair and starts to clap because what, she, what he did for her on, national, on a national stage was gave her husband's death purpose his death wasn't random his death will lead to the saving of lives going forward his death and watch the words was etched in eternity This, by the way, is I don't know how somebody who's not but doesn't have faith goes through these times because you can see her looking up into heaven and saying, I'm with you, baby. I'm with you. Because what Donald Trump gave her last night wasn't just a little bit of gratitude. What he gave her last night was some purpose for her pain she's struggling and she's in pain and I gotta tell you, it's all fine and good when we watch it, but we don't go home with her that night and we don't watch her in the car, and we don't watch her the next morning when she's trying to get breakfast done for the kids and put them on the bus and send them to school and we don't, we're not with her for Christmas or for weddings when she goes alone. That woman's in pain. But when you can hand somebody a little purpose, when you can share something about somebody else or even about what they're going through and give it some purpose, you give them more than just the gratitude. You let them feel like what they're going through has a reason. And if we have purpose, us humans can go through anything. We can go through hell and high water if you just give us a reason. And I think when I walked away from that, it made me think about my purpose. And I think it should think about your purpose. Living a life at that standard. Living a life with that Navy SEAL, that motto, that sacrificing for what we believe in. 'Cause at some point we're all gonna pass away, and hopefully that someone will see the purpose in our action. This is Charlie Harari. When we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit about public speaking, a move that Donald Trump made that you should use in your life, and how it was very, very effective. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back.
3: Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Dispensing the truth. This is
1: Buck Sexton
3: on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: And welcome back to the show, everybody. Charlie Rari sitting in for Buck Sexton. I hope everybody's well. Spent a little bit of time today dissecting the various components of the Donald Trump speech last night and how important it was, both from a policy perspective, the substance of what's going to be taking place next year and the impact that it's going to have on our lives, but in many ways, maybe more importantly, on the style and some of the techniques along the way. Because... As you look at your life and as you try to implement things that will make your life better, sometimes the best lessons you can learn are from the people that are at the top. And you can be sure that Donald Trump didn't just write a speech in shorthand. You can be sure that he employed the greatest to help him craft a speech that was going to be, I think, maybe the most, at least into this point, the defining moment of his presidency. And I want to share something to you at this bottom half of the hour um, that I think, I I mean, I've heard the million times. This is advice that I've gotten from coaches and public speakers across the country. I've had the opportunity to speak in different parts of the country. And when you get to get up on these platforms, you get to hang out with some of the best speakers in the world. And you get to sort of get their strategies strategies and their tactics. This is number one. So what you're going to hear right now is number one. On the list of strategies for becoming more persuasive and effective which is maybe more important than anything that we learned last night from the speech because that'll go but what you're going to become in hearing these things and being able to learn from somebody something beyond just the substance may last you and may give you much more than what you can get otherwise and what happened last night was incredible and Donald Trump employed a very specific technique, mostly throughout his speech. And I want to play you a clip and I want to share with you the technique and I want to teach it to you so that today you can use it and for the rest of your life, and hopefully you'll stay in touch with me and you'll say, hey, Charlie, remember I heard that show on March 1st? My gosh, it really helped me. Midway through the speech, he, he, Trump calls out someone named Monica Crowley. I'm sorry, Megan Crowley. Megan Crowley, someone who was diagnosed with the Pompeii disease, a very rare and serious illness when she was 15 years old. Okay, she wasn't expected to live past five, but her, her, her dad, Megan's dad, John, did everything that he could and literally founded a company to look for a cure that helped save her life. And now she's 20 and a sophomore at Notre Dame. Listen to this.
2: True love for our people requires us to find common ground to advance the common good, and to cooperate on behalf of every American child who deserves a much brighter future. An incredible young woman is with us this evening, who should serve as an inspiration to us all. Today is Rare Disease Day, and joining us in the gallery is a rare disease survivor, Megan Crowley. Megan. Megan was diagnosed with Pompe disease a rare and serious illness when she was 15 months old she was not expected to live past five on receiving this news Megan's dad John fought with everything he had to save the life of his precious child he founded a company to look for a cure and helped develop the drug that saved Megan's life today she is 20 years old and a sophomore at Notre Dame. (laughs) Megan's story is about the unbounded power of a father's love for a daughter. But our slow and burdensome approval process at the Food and Drug Administration keeps too many advances, like the one that saved Megan's life, from reaching those in need. If we slash the restraints, not just at the FDA, but across our government, then we will be blessed with far more miracles, just like Megan.) Did you catch that?
1: Do you see the move? You see the technique? Because this is genius. I mean, this, this, this is as good as it gets. Right? What was the purpose of Megan Crowley's? I mean, she's an incredible person, and God bless her. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, I was crying when I saw her. And God bless her father, John. Really, I'm a dad. I When I hear a story of a dad that'll cross rivers and climb mountains for their child and do what he did, it, it makes me be proud of our species. And I hope and pray that she lives the greatest life ever. I really do. And I thought to myself, personally, I'm so happy that Someone who's who suffered a disease like this is highlighted on a national stage. And that's the truth. And that's, that's the most important part of this. But in this segment of the show, I want to teach you a technique. And what Megan's role, so to speak, what she did for Donald Trump. Again, I don't mean to be sinister about this. I just want to sort of share with you the technique. What was this whole segment about? This segment was about one thing. What was it? Right? He said it. He let it out it was about convincing the American people that government is too big. Wasn't that it? Right? Wasn't that the point? Wasn't his entire point that... Isn't that his whole point in general? If you would have to look at the top five Donald Trump things that he always says, isn't number one, two, or three, government is too slow, big, inefficient, right? The whole pass one, kill two, he is constantly, and this just sort of circles back to what Jake said on the show an hour ago about how that's what the audience wants. That's what the nation wants to hear. They want to hear what we deep down know, that when you give something to government and you look at this 500-page regulation book, you know there's something wrong. His point was government is too big, too slow, and as a result to an effective because he has a sledgehammer in his hand and he is planning on chopping off the heads of lots of government regulatory agencies. Had he come out and said that, everyone would have been like, okay, we've heard that already. But he doesn't because he was advised. Give me a story. Give me something that I can judge for my own and then tell me and let me be the judge of whether you're right or wrong. That's what he did. He gave us a story. He gave us a story of a girl who was diagnosed with a rare disease whose father single-handedly found some cure that can keep her at a point where she's able to be a sophomore at a college in America. She was supposed to have passed away at five and then he links That too, the slow and effective regulatory heavy agency, the FDA, so that me and you can look at it and go, oh man, it's government against Megan and her father, John. What he did last night, the technique that he used last night was find the story for every argument. This is persuasive speaking 101. This, If you take this tool and put it in your quiver for the rest of your life, you will find you will become more effective any time you want to convince somebody of something. It doesn't have to be something big. It can be your boyfriend. It can be your child. It can be your boss. It can be your consumer. You find a story that they'll resonate with a story about you and your family, a story from maybe the Bible, a story about someone that you heard about that have gone through what you want to get across. You want the kids to do something and you find a story about hard work or grit. You find a story about innovation if you're speaking to your boss. You find the story about overcoming challenges if you're speaking to your friend who's having a hard time. If you want to become persuasive in what you do, don't just come out and say it. That's easy. Teach it. What Donald Trump did last night, and people say he took advantage of her. I don't think it was that sinister. He was making a point that regulations will hurt people. I'm not cutting regulations because I'm just me against politics I'm not cutting regulations, and by the way this may be I don't know but I'm saying his point was I'm not cutting regulations because I got nothing better to do with my time I'm cutting regulations because it's harmful for innovation it's harmful to people and I'm not gonna tell you that straight I'm gonna show it to you Do you see that brilliance I'm going to bring somebody out that's going to, just by her very presence, get you to stand on your feet and clap. I'm going to bring out a story of a dad that on his own will inspire you just from who he is and was, or he is. And then, once you've already bought in to this incredible story, I'm going to point out the antagonist in the corner i'm going to reveal the bad guy from behind curtain three after you're, you're standing and cheering right after you're wiping your eyes with tears after you've already felt the goosebumps in the back of your neck then i reveal and listen to it google it youtube it it's unreal i'm going to reveal behind curtain three is the bad guy the f d a they would have stopped this. They are the reason why it's, we're not doing more of this. They are the reason why Monica, I'm sorry, I keep on saying that, I apologize, Megan Crowley's, they are the reason why the Megan Crowley's of the world don't have the support, the medicine, the treatment that they need to become successful, to become healthy, to grow and live, to overcome their challenges. That is public speaking brilliance. And if you do that, and by the way, he did it twice, right? He did it again. He did it a million times. But if you notice later when he spoke about the school voucher program, he didn't just speak about school vouchers. He brought up a woman named Denisha Merriweather, right? Someone who struggled growing up and then benefited from a program that she was able to, to, to join outside the public school system. And he's using her, another story. They brought her out in the gallery. They stood her up. Everybody cheered. And they go, okay, it works. And then he says, school voucher programs. Because if you want to get your points across, if you want to become more effective, if you want to become more persuasive, you have to allow your listener to join your way of thinking without hearing your way of thinking. You see that? If right away I come out with a point, you're already responding back to my point. You're already fighting me on it. If I get up there right now and say, we need school vouchers, or we need FDA's bad, or the government's too regulatory you know, focused, people will be like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. But if I'm able to take my time and build a story around it, now you've already decided for yourself right and wrong. It's called the straw man. You can be able to be much more aligned with my point. Try it on your life today and tweet me. Let me know if it works. I'm giving you homework. How do you like that? Try it on your life. You go home tonight and the next time you got to make a point. The next time you got to say anything to anybody that you have to be persuasive. Try before you make your point to think of a story that the person that's listening would resonate with that'll show your point and you'll see that your effectiveness will go up unbelievably. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a lesson that I saw this week from the Oscars debacle and what we can take in every single one of our lives to make sure that we never end up like that PWC employee that literally is the talk of Tinseltown. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network.
0: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck. Thanks so much for taking the time to stick with me throughout this show. An honor to be sitting in his chair. Buck's such a great guy, and his audience is absolutely incredible. Just to go back a little bit, we spoke about, you know, we we began the show with this idea of the power of communication and the importance of that, and I think that most of us don't fully appreciate that. If you have to learn nothing from last night's um, performance from Donald Trump, learn the following that just when everything seems lost for a relationship or for uh, confidence, just communicating how you do things and why you think things goes a really long way. Right? If nothing happened last night, at least the American people, after watching Donald Trump get killed in the media of the past 60 days or so, you can see, or 40 days, you can, you can see just how quickly people just want us to communicate with them. But you learn, we learned a few things throughout this period of time. Right? We learned about the people how it's all about the people, and you need to get the trust of the people, and how the politics and the political class has really lost the faith of the everyday person, and that's why Donald Trump is who he is, because he's the blunt instrument that's trying to break down the class that has lost the trust. What he tried to do last night was actually regain the trust. We learned about the power of perception, the perceiving something to be strong and confident, and what that does to the economy and what that does to the, to, the, to the country, and the power of gratitude. Saying thank you for things, especially people that sacrifice them for you, whether that sacrifice is life and limb, or just you know, time and dedication, and showing someone the purpose of their pain. But most importantly, I think one of the things that I hope we take away is the power of a story, and what that means for us, and how stories, I know that Glenn speaks about this a lot. It's true, stories are what make us, stories are what connect us. So tell your story and hear someone else's story because that's how we're going to become the nation that we're meant to be. It's Charlie Harari thanking you for the time, the attention. Thank you, Buck, for giving me the chance. And you're always, it's an honor. Really, it is. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show, and this is The Blaze Radio Network. Have a great day. sexton show only on the blaze radio
3: network